Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. As always, my name is James, and I'm here with some of the big stories in New York that the Empire Center has been following. Let's jump right in. A state Supreme Court judge recently voided the bulk of New York's substantial equivalence regulations, which are aimed at religious and other non-public schools. Essentially, the ruling said that the state's compulsory schooling rules apply to parents and not institutions. Based on the ruling, if a school is not checking every box set by the legislature, parents are expected to supplement it, rather than relying on merely one source of instruction provided at a single location. New data on See Through New York details the latest round of grants directed to pet projects by state lawmakers and the governor using money borrowed from the Dormitory Authority of the State of New York, or DASNY. More than 600 grants have been issued since April 2022, totaling more than $230 million. Now, the grants are not awarded on a competitive or transparent basis, and most are dispersed outside of the normal budget process, which means that state lawmakers never vote on the individual recipients. And to close, we've got one more only in New York story. Real Eats, which is a Finger Lakes-based meal kit company, closed its doors suddenly this month, despite New York state government sinking upwards of $14 million into the operation. Now, it's not clear whether Real Eats ever turned a profit, but economic development officials kept pouring the funds in, betting as late as 2022 that it had the secret recipe to keep this business alive and competing with established incumbents. For more of the big stories on the policy successes and failures in New York State, make sure to check out Empire Center's blog at empirecenter.org. And now stay tuned for the rest of this episode where we talk about transportation policy and electric school buses. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. I'm joined today by Nicole Gelinas, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor at City Journal, and a columnist at the New York Post. Uh, Nicole is also the author of the Transportation and Transit section of the Empire Center's policy compendium, The Next New York, which you can find at nextnewyork.org. Nicole, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Tim. Thanks for having me, and thanks for asking me to participate in the report. Well, this has been great. Um, this is one of a series of uh, podcast interviews we're doing on different chapters of the report, um, which, as you know, goes into 11 different policy areas um, where New York could be doing things better. Of course, there are far more than 11 areas where New York could be doing things better, but this is a good start. Um, so let's jump right in. Your section, your your chapter is on, on transportation and transit if you could sum it up in a way um, that somebody who isn't a who isn't one of us, um, who doesn't spend their whole days filled up with with New York State policy and New York City policy issues, what's the problem? Sure. If if I was going to give you my forty five second summary of the report, the good news is that thanks to our legacy of being in in early industrial state, and yes, in some ways a progressive state during the first third of the 20th century, New York has a great legacy of transportation and transit assets to build upon, whether it's the subway system, which is the the underpinning of the the downstate density and wealth, or the New York State thruway system, uh, once uh, an avenue 
for industrial production and transportation, now an avenue for white collar research and development and academic work uh, in communication and transportation throughout the state. So we've got these assets. They were well planned. They were well built in the first place. They've certainly been reasonably maintained. They're not utterly falling apart, but we have lost our way. And it's not something that just happened recently. It's over, you know, more than two decades. Uh, when how have we lost our way? We've been uh, relying too much on debt rather than pay as you go, whether it's uh, transportation, highway rehabilitation and, and uh, repair or the transit system rehabilitation and repair. And we, we also are uh, enamored of building large mega projects with no way to pay for them. Also means we're even more reliant on debt, but it means we've lost sight of having to maintain and upgrade the assets that we have. This, you brought up the throughway, and th this is an interesting case study. You actually pointed out as a case study in your chapter. New Yorkers were basically sold a, a, a false promise on the throughway, right? Um, it was going to pay for itself. It was going to be paid off, and then the and then the tolls would go away. But that didn't happen. What happened on on the throughway? Right. I mean, if if you if you go back uh, to to the middle of the the 20th century, uh, you know, Governor Governor Dewey, uh, one of our visionary governors, we've had uh, many for both uh, good and for ill, but mostly for good. Uh, he presented the throughway as self liquidating. What does that mean? Just like Robert Moses, Tribal Bridge and Tunnel Authority, the bridge would pay for itself. It would it would be able to fund its construction, debt costs, and maintenance and operation costs through the tolls that people paid. And once the construction and, and debt were paid for, the tolls were supposed to uh, disappear. As we know, with both the MTA and the Thruway, tolls never really uh, disappear. I think we can we can dispense with that myth, even when the projects are, are fully paid for. But the Thruway did eventually uh, pay for itself in terms of uh, toll revenue operations and, and uh, maintenance. It actually cost twice as much as it was supposed to cost. It was supposed to cost uh, half a billion dollars, ended up uh, costing uh, a billion. So cost overruns are nothing new to New York State. Uh, the state had to borrow some money to supplement the toll revenue. Uh, but by the 1970s, the, the true throughway was doing well in terms of traffic volume, and it was funding itself. It, it was uh, fulfilling the, the promise that Dewey uh uh, made. Uh, the problem is uh, back in the, the late 1990s, actually early 1990s, uh, first Governor Cuomo asked the thruway to take on things that had nothing to do with the thruway, including the canal system, which was losing money. And then uh, later on, the second Governor uh, Cuomo sort of foisted the cost of uh, rebuilding the Tappan Zee Bridge with no uh, no schedule of toll increases to pay for that massive $4 billion project. So now we're kind of back to where we were in the 1950s. Uh, we have a thruway that uh, should pay for itself, but unless we see significant toll increases over the next uh, few years, this will also be another asset that is in deficit, not in, in surplus. Well, and this is there's a lot of competing things going on. And um, I want to get back to the idea of paying down the debt service on the throughway, but the throughway went tollless and it started or, or, or it took the tolls out and we now have electronic scanners. Right. Which, yeah. Which, I was going to say, when it. you said it went tollless, I was yeah. like, oh, that's no, news Tollless wasn't the right word. The, yeah. um, 
I, the, I wish. Uh, uh, but automatic so, toll collection. Right. And and so that's a cost-saving measure. And the throughway historically had been, you know, certainly relative to New York, but I think even generally kind of a lean operation because mm-hmm. was figure out a way to 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 take these costs out. And so they had gotten, they had almost gotten there, or they had gotten there, right? Did did they ever pay down the debt, the original one billion in, in debt? Uh, they paid it, but then they all, you know, just like, just like any long-term asset, you finally pay the debt, but then the asset is aging. So it needs significant new maintenance work. And then, you know, 70 years along or 60 years along, we had to replace the Tappan Zee Bridge with the Mario Cuomo Bridge. So we have a we have a four billion dollar project. The governor, uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo, did not want to increase tolls on the Tappan Zee Bridge sufficient to pay for the the debt service on the new bridge. Uh, and so, you know, now we're kind of back where they were in the early 1990s. Uh, back then, they did they did eventually uh, get some political independence to raise tolls uh, sufficient enough to continue to 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 stay on a sustainable operating basis. And so that's something that they're going to have to do again. Uh, but yes, you're right. It's not this is not a case where operating expenses have just spiraled out of control. Uh, the operating budget is actually uh, pretty lean, uh, you know, for a decade up until the pandemic the 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 op, the budget only rose from a little bit less than half a billion dollars a year to a little bit more. It didn't even keep uh, keep up with inflation. So this isn't really a place where you can say, oh, you know, they can just slash twenty percent out of their budget. It is more of an issue of uh, taking on this large bridge project with no way to pay for it, which is one of the reforms that I suggest in the chapter. Not that big projects aren't necessarily bad, but if we are going to embark on a big project, whether it's a multi-billion dollar bridge, multi-billion dollar uh, uh, project to bring Long Island Railroad to the east side of Manhattan, uh, something like the the, um, capping the Cross Bronx Expressway, you have to identify how you're going to pay for that project from the outset. If you want to ask the voters to approve a bond act because the project's not going to pay for itself, go to the voters, say, these are the projects we want to build with the bond act. Do you agree with this or not? If you want it to be a revenue project, then identify the toll and or and or tax revenue that you are going to use to pay for this revenue project uh, before you start out and make the case to the voters, this is worth doing and this is worth paying for. And that's the thing that sort of sticks in your crawl at the end of the day with the with the Tappan Zee or with the Cuomo Bridge is, is it they sort of circumvented this requirement that voters have a chance to weigh in before taking on new debt, before taking this on. And they didn't do that. And that happens, you know, probably more often than we'd like, um, especially with big projects like this. And for a future episode, we'll be talking about some of the cost drivers of these projects. And while the throughway does operate fairly lean, there's lots of things that are impacting the cost of maintaining and operating. If you think about prevailing wage, the cost of labor, contracts that they're signing, all of these things that go into it. And it costs a lot more to build things here in New York than it does in a lot of other places because of that. 
which is a great segue into talking about the MTA and some of the problems there. So, so the highways and bridges are one side of this infrastructure, transportation, transit area. The MTA and, and sort of New York City proper is another. Um, just, I mean, real quick on that, what's what are the what are the massive structural issues that we're dealing with? Well, I mean, how much time do we have? I mean, the, the MTA, uh, you know, if if we just sort of end on the the roads and bridges, you know, we we should at least mention uh, the gas tax is not raising it, it, as much revenue in in terms of keeping up with inflation as it once did. I mean, it's sort of a good news story. Vehicles are becoming much more efficient even without the electric vehicle side. So that's something the state is going to have to think about too. Is how do you replace those gas tax revenues with something else? Uh, but yes, on the transit side, but at least with the roads, bridges, uh, and so forth, you have a solid asset system. The operating costs are not insane. Uh, these problems are not all that difficult to fix. It just takes a sort of minor political will. The transit situation is very different. You have three sets of problems. Uh, one is is COVID and the very slow recovery of the downstate region, particularly Manhattan, from the pandemic. In terms of you know, I'm I'm in Midtown Manhattan. There are a lot of tourists around. There are more office workers than there were a year ago or two years ago. But the office workers are not back five days a week. They're coming in two to three days a week. That pretty much exactly fits with the MTA's ridership. You know, weekday ridership on subways, on commuter rail is around 62%, close to two thirds on a good day. But it has been plateaued at that level for close to, year, to a year. It's really hard to see the MTA coming back to pre-pandemic ridership uh, indefinitely, uh, unless we figure out a way to get these office workers back five days a week. Just and not, notwithstanding happen. that when they were at full capacity, they still weren't producing enough revenue. Right. That. So if you yeah. if you take your very roughly fair revenue was about half of their revenues, the rest of it came from taxes. So they are now missing uh, 40% of half of their revenue. So that is that is a big drop for them. And that is why if you look into the future, they face two and a half billion dollar annual deficits, more than 20% of operating revenue every year as, as many years as we can see into the future. So that's a big change is just entirely missing this revenue. The, the other two issues are more chronic. At the MTA, operating costs have uh, soared. The operating budget has basically doubled in 20 years. And that's because unlike a road or bridge, it costs a lot of money to operate mass transit. You know, this is something that transit advocates never quite uh, grapple with uh, when we talk about transportation subsidizing transit. That's fine, uh, but the, the transit just has massively uh, larger operating costs. Uh, you know, it doesn't really take very much to operate a road. Uh, you need some state troopers, you need maintenance uh, once in a while, but a train is very different where you have two people on every single uh, subway train, you have more than two people on every single commuter rail train, and much larger maintenance and, and repair uh, ongoing issues. So, 
the costs are much higher and they've been rising and there has been no appetite for going to the labor unions, you know, particularly the railroads. I know Empire has done so much on the Long Island Railroad in particular. Uh, the Post just did a series saying you, you could you could save hundreds of millions of dollars a year just doing pretty basic things where the the uh, the customers really wouldn't even notice that you had done them. Uh, but still, we're still very far away from seeing that the governor has uh, is willing to expend political capital on saying to the unions, you know, look, we've we've got to have hundreds of millions of dollars in concessions minimal before we can even uh, think about uh, new new labor agreements. And then, of course, the third part is the capital. Uh, as you said, our capital costs are much higher than any most other places in the country. Uh, that's particularly too true in in transit. And so when we look ahead to these multi-billion dollar projects, you know, the second phase of the Second Avenue subway, uh, whatever the state ends up doing around Penn Station, I think, A, we have to rethink some of these projects. The Penn Station project can certainly be uh, scaled down. Uh, and, and B, again, if you want to uh, build these projects, you know, the Interborough uh, Queens Brooklyn Link is one that the governor is pushing. You have got to say how you are going to pay for them in advance. Uh, we can't just, you know, take on billions of dollars of debt like we did with East Side Access and say, we're just going to leave it to the next guy or the next woman who is the governor 10 years from now, because we just don't have the ridership to sort of deal, uh, have that luxury of dealing with the problem later anymore. So if you if you take out the I like to call them the New York added costs. Right. So all of these increases that are based on decisions we've made and you go back to just sort of the infrastructure of the MTA of the transit system, which, as you said, is is expensive to operate. Doesn't matter how efficient and good you are at it, it's still going to be expensive. In a post-COVID remote work, whatever this is that we're entering into, does there need to be a reimagining of what and how the MTA provides what it provides? I think some of the reimagining should be learn to be more like Europe in, in terms of how you deliver the service. And, and for one thing, on commuter rail, should we go to a gated entry ticket collection where, and, and I'm not saying we have to do this tomorrow, you could phase this in over 10 years so you don't have to have layoffs, you can do this through attrition, but you'll build a gate infrastructure around the commuter rail system and you tap your card just like you do to get into the subway, the gate opens, and then the person who checks the fares on the commuter rail train doesn't check every single ticket. They may stop on every car and say, uh, not out loud, but uh, to, to themselves, we're checking every third seat this day, or we're checking every third uh, row. So you can do it in a random way, but a random way that is also determined in advance. So there's no discrimination on perceived race or perceived gender or anything like that. But, you know, every third person say, can I see your ticket? If they don't have one, then they pay a fine sufficient enough for them to deter to deter them from doing it in the future. I mean, as uh, you know, Nolan Hicks at the Post says, 
you're giving away half of the money you collected in tickets on commuter rail just to collect the tickets. You know, that doesn't seem like a, a very sustainable system. So there's large scale things they could think about. Um, on the subway system, again, doesn't have to be now, but longer term project. As the subways go to digital operation, maybe you only need one person on the train instead of two, or maybe the second person on the train has a different job description. Maybe that person walks through the whole train, calling in any disorder to the police department at the next stop. So you're both providing a better service and hopefully having a lower cost. Uh, you know, lots to think about, lots of negotiations and uh, trade-offs, but the governor has to at least start thinking about them. We can't do what the previous governor did and just say, okay, we're just going to sign new labor agreements with no concessions at all. I was just going to say, and that becomes, you know, for fear of being a broken record. I mean, this is, this is something, it's a political reality for the governor and for anybody who's working at the MTA that in order to get those changes, you need to get concessions because it's going to mean jobs. You can't, I mean, so much of this is labor-based without getting rid of jobs, you can't save money. Right. And, you know, I hate to go to the feather bedding because I know the feather bedding is not the structural issue. The structural issue is the benefit structure, the inefficiencies built in. But just to give one example of what is clearly feather bedding, you know, if you go to a Mets game, you have multiple, multiple conductors on the train, and then you have people outside of the train once again checking the tickets when people leave the Mets game. I mean, you're spending literally thousands of dollars to check the tickets of the people coming off the Mets train. You know, there are more efficient ways of, of doing that. You know, this is clearly a kind of perk. You, you get a little extra overtime to stand out there and, and work the Mets game. You know, these are things that just a signal, yes, we are trying to save money here and we are trying to do things differently here. Right. Now, is that a Yankees-Mets thing? If I were to ride the subway to Yankee Stadium, maybe it's a different crowd and it requires less checking? How would I know? Why would I go to a Yankee game? <laughs> you, have to, you have to ask somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, uh, but the governor is coming to the rescue, right? Uh, so her executive budget was released last week. Um, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.6 billion in an MTA bailout. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the governor, uh, part of the election last year, uh, the transit advocates sort of kept saying, if you elect Zeldin governor, the transit system will just go to hell in a handbasket. Zeldin doesn't care about transit. Hochul's going to save transit. Okay, so people voted for Hochul for better or for worse. And so let's see if she's actually going to uh, make good on this implied uh, promise of being the only one who would save the transit system. So is the plan that she put forward as part of the state budget a sustainable uh, package for the transit system? Uh, not, not. It's really not the case that it is. Uh, the, so the biggest part of this is to increase the downstate payroll tax for 15 years uh, since the, I guess 14 years since the Governor Patterson administration. Uh, the state has levied a third of a percent tax on every downstate uh, paycheck. 
uh, it's done, the employer pays it, so you don't see it on your paycheck, but it does indirectly come out of your paycheck. And that raises close to $2 billion a year for the MTA. So the biggest part of the governor's package is to raise that tax, bring it from a third of a percent to half a percent of payroll. So this is a middle middle class uh, tax increase. It is also a tax on downstate jobs when we're still missing uh, you know, more than 100,000 downstate jobs. So maybe not the best time to have a new tax on downstate jobs. But more importantly, it doesn't deal with the cost side. You know, the, the operating efficiencies that the governor nodded to in her budget speech, those are already baked into the MTA budget. The MTA hasn't identified what specifically they are. Uh, so just to raise taxes before we really address the operating uh, spending side, it's probably not wise. But also we have no labor agreements. You know, the TWU agreement with the MTA, this covers more than 30,000 workers. This is up six weeks after the state budget. So it's easy to see a scenario where the legislature approves this tax and virtually all of it over a three-year period goes to inflation-linked raises to TWU. Uh, and then also the fair hike process starts after the budget season, probably May or June. And so it's also easy to see the governor getting the legislature to adopt this tax and then coming to the rescue and saying, okay, now we're not going to have a fair hike. Uh, and so that just pushes the project off a year or so. Uh, so it would make much more sense to say, let's see what the signed labor agreement looks like. Let's see what level of fair increases that the MTA board approves this year. What does the deficit look like after that? And then how are we going to fill in that deficit? And, and the other part of this is she just she wants another half a billion dollars from New York City. Uh, all this money comes from the same place. You know, the mayor has said he's not all that interested in giving half a billion dollars a year to the MTA. So these are not really long term fixes that address the MTA's multi-billion dollar post-COVID deficits. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we just have a minute left. Um, I, you know, as you wrapped up sort of your chapter for Next New York, you had several suggestions of things that could happen, and several of them were focused on um, a very strange concept known as user fees. And so there is some component, and I, we have to recognize, right? The MTA is really expensive. We talked about that. It's always going to be maintaining roads and bridges is expensive, and there are services that government provides that maybe they should play some role in. And so we can accept that as a premise. But the user fee side of this is something where, you know, if you want to talk about equity, there's really stuff missing there. Can you just wrap on that for 30 seconds? Yeah, um, there's, if you think about um, the gas tax, again, for example, uh, we, we're not going to get the same level of money from the gas tax. So should we start to think about a vehicle miles travel tax. Uh, you you could there are there are some East Coast states that have done voluntary pilots, or people can sign up and say, you know, I'm kind of nerdy and I'd kind of like to see how this uh, works. Um, there are ways you can do a vehicle miles travel tax without actually having to see where people went. It can be speedometer based where you would then uh, submit, uh, you sort of get a bill at the end of the month, kind of like easy pass. And then 
you could say, uh, these are miles that I drove out of state and subtract those miles from the speedometer. You could do this on commercial traffic first, where there are less worries about the privacy issues. Uh, but there are certainly ways to think about moving away from the gas tax. But again, uh, if you wait until there's crisis and then you just slap this onto people and they haven't had a chance to think about it, you haven't had voluntary pilots to kind of get the kinks out of it, and it is just seen as a revenue raising measure, you know, that's not the best way to go about it. And the example would be congestion pricing. I mean, congestion pricing was signed into law in 2019. We still don't have it. Whether people think it's a good idea or not, there are better ways to go about getting the public used to this idea. We could have started with a voluntary uh, program for people driving in core Manhattan. Uh, to, that would be location-based to say, okay, here's the miles I drove in core Manhattan. Uh, you could you could do it for a few years where it offsets another tax or fee to get people used to it. You could start with a very, very low fee. I mean, the, the state could have started with a nominal, you know, $2 fee to drive in, in core Manhattan just to get people used to the idea. But the way we're going, uh, you, you know, you're going to immediately be slapped with an up to $23 fee to enter core Manhattan, uh, maybe sometime starting next year, without really exploring the different ways that you could think about doing this. So, you know, approaching this of pilot programs, see what works and what doesn't, and uh, also looking at the cost side at the same time makes a lot more sense than wait till you have a big crisis and suddenly people are paying a big new tax or fee and it's not meant to change their behavior. It's only meant to raise money. Well, it's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot to right. think about there. This is certainly going to be coming up in conversation um, through the end of the budget cycle for sure, but certainly into the future. Um, congestion pricing and 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 the city tax fees are are definitely going to be a part of that. Um, Nicole, thank you. Uh, thanks for for being a part of our book and thanks for doing this podcast. It was great to chat with you. Thank you, Tim. And I hope the governor and the legislature uh, adopt some of uh, some of your other contributors' ideas as well. You know, certainly. Uh, Excellent stuff here, whether it's uh, the, the state's general approach to taxes and borrowing, uh, medical cost reform. I mean, as you said, there's a plenty of places where the state can do better. Yeah, that's for sure. It's a good place to leave it. All right, Nicole, take care. Thanks. Thank you, Tim. Welcome back. My name is Emily DiVertola. I'm the Education Policy Analyst for the Empire Center. And for this section of the podcast, I'll be having a conversation with our energy expert, James Hanley. And we'll be talking about a recent report he did on electric buses. So James, tell me a little bit about this policy. Will kids be riding on electric school buses in the near future? Well, if the state has its way, they will. Uh, so the policy would start in 2027 require all new school buses being purchased in the state as of that year to be zero emission school buses, which uh, functionally would uh, probably mean they'd all be, uh, or almost all would be battery electric school buses. And by 2037, 10 years later, all the school buses in the state uh, are to be uh, zero emission vehicles. So a 10 year transition over to those. And the goal here is to help the state meet its uh, intended, it's targeted greenhouse gas emissions reductions uh, under the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, as well as to provide a cleaner uh, transportation environment for the state school children. 
All right. I mean, a cleaner environment for the students, cleaner environment for the planet. That sounds reasonable enough to me. Um, are there any drawbacks to this initiative? Yes, those are those are good goals, right? Both are advantageous, um, but there are definitely quite a few drawbacks that will make it uh, a challenge to comply with this law. Um, the overriding problem uh, probably is the limited range of electric school buses. Uh, they, they just can't go as far as decent school buses, and then they take a lot longer to refuel or recharge uh, than a decent school bus does. And what this means is school districts are going to have to reconfigure how they run their, uh, their routes to pick up and drop off kids. Um, some routes are longer than the distance that school electric school buses can go. And so are the schools going to have to buy extra buses to meet these routes or find some other way to resolve that kind of problem. Um, and range, range problems are also exacerbated uh, by two primary factors. One is hilly terrain, and some of our school districts are located in hilly areas. Uh, as you go uphill, it drains the battery faster. Just as on a diesel bus, it's going to take more gas. And also um, cold weather, because the heat to warm up the school bus and keep the little kids from freezing uh, is drawn from its power drawn from the battery which drains it faster and reduces its range even further. Yeah. Um, so yeah. schools are gonna have to figure that out. Uh, they also may run into, because of range issues, they may also run into problems of not being able to participate in some sporting events or take some field trips that they're used to taking if the distance is too long. Sure. Um, yeah, and you know, many districts are already struggling as is with transportation. with their Absolutely, it's, it's a huge cost for districts uh, and always is. Um, there's, there's also a troublesome reality that a lot of rural uh, small bridges aren't designed to hold the weight of electric school bus, which is considerably heavier than a diesel school bus because the battery packs uh, weigh a lot. And then they'll have to recharge in the middle of the day uh, so they can make both the morning and afternoon runs. And recharging at night isn't a big problem. That's when energy is the cheapest. But there's more energy demand overall during the middle of the day, so they're going to have to recharge uh, at a time when, when energy costs more. So unless they can work out deals with utilities to get uh, some cut rate charging, that's going to add to uh, the overall ongoing cost of it. Um, Feels like a big so logistical burden on school districts. Huge logistical problem. And they, have to, uh, they haven't begun to deal with this. They're going to have to retrain all the mechanics, too, uh, because the mechanics all know how to operate on internal combustion engines. and Dealing with uh, battery vehicles is an entirely different beast altogether. Uh, so they're going to have to retrain from scratch in a lot of areas. So it's going to take, and, and nobody, very few school districts have begun seriously thinking about these issues yet. They're going to have to, um, and probably the more they look into it, the more kind of frantic they're going to get. Yeah. So what about the cost? How does this compare in terms of the traditional diesel school buses? Well, the good thing about an electric school bus is that uh, it's cheaper to operate uh, in general. So over time, if they operate long enough, the cost can even out fairly well. But there's a huge upfront difference in cost that school districts will have to deal with. Um, a standard diesel bus costs around $150,000, and the electric school buses cost about two to two and a half times as much, somewhere between $300,000 and $400,000 on average. Um, and plus each one needs about ten to $30,000 in infrastructure upgrades for the charging needs. 
So this gets very expensive. And New York has approximately 50,000 school buses. So uh, simple math tells us that the additional cost above and beyond the cost of buying diesel school buses is going to be between eight and $15 billion uh, by 2037. Um, and that's the one-time cost. If electric school buses remain more expensive than diesel school buses, then as they get replaced, uh, each time we have to replace them, we'll still be paying that higher cost. That's quite a bit. How how does the state yeah how does the state plan to pay for that? Well, it, it really doesn't have a plan to pay for that. Um, we've discovered that there is a little over a hundred million dollars in uh, existing and new federal and state programs that will help pay for likely to pay for uh, school buses in New York. And then the Clean Water, Clean Air, and Green Jobs Environmental Bond that voters approved last November contains $500 million specifically for school electric school buses. So that's about $600 million on a project that's going to cost between eight and $15 billion. So the state currently has plans to cover somewhere uh, between four and 7% of the cost. And the rest will presumably fall on school districts um, which means they have to find that money somewhere. So that's probably either higher local taxes or some significant cuts in uh, educational or sports programs or some combination of the two. Yeah. If you were to rewrite it, how would you improve it? Um, the good thing is that newer diesel school buses are a lot cleaner than the old school buses, thanks to upgraded diesel technology. These studies that show can... Uh, certain amounts of harm to school children's health are based on the older, dirtier diesel buses. So just going with newer, cleaner diesel buses um, would be much cheaper and would still give us a lot of health gains. And school districts have to do that anyway. They, they uh, In New York, they tend to replace buses every 12 and 15 years. Uh, the engines often are still functional, but they, they tend, like your own personal passenger vehicle, uh, they tend to rust out and wear out uh, just because of the climate here. Um, and so that would be a lot cheaper. And if we used more biodiesel in those buses, as opposed to uh, your traditional diesel uh, from fossil fuels, uh, we would get a lot of the greenhouse gas benefits from that because biodiesel is carbon neutral. Um, another alternative is propane diesel, propane buses. Um, they're, they're available and they only cost about a, the same amount as a diesel powered bus. So they're much cheaper. They have much lower greenhouse gas emissions, much lower uh, emissions of particulate matter, which is the, the concern with diesel. Uh, they haven't been real popular so far with school districts. We're trying to get school districts to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, they might find propane buses uh, a more attractive way to go. Yeah. And in general, I think we should, we, you know, it's okay to encourage districts to push towards uh, reducing the greenhouse gas emissions, but we need to, instead of setting artificial, uh, politically determined timelines that have no relation to feasibility, we need to focus on letting technology and cost uh, drive this so that school districts can make the best decisions for their own districts based on their economics and, you know, what, what uh, their taxpayers want for their own kids. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for taking the time to shed some contacts on the costs and, and benefits of this initiative. Um, and thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Messages of Necessity. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review.
For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center.